Every uh, few years, there is a change in the language where there are catchphrases that really catch on like wildfire. And people use them and you kind of get tired of it. In the last couple years, uh, phrases like we need to lean in has become really popular. With really smart people, they like to use the word nuanced. That's a nuanced discussion. Um, Woke, of course, is being used everywhere. And some phrases are so overused that they, they make lists of the most irritating phrases in our society. Like the top ten these days have, have in it, we need to circle back because it's the new normal. And at the end of the day, it's all fake news. Wait, what? Yeah, we need to take a deep dive. Just asking for a friend. I know I'm sounding sus and I'm not capping you. All right, so... But there's one phrase that drives me crazy. Drives me crazy. Because it is the go-to phrase by every, what I would say, charlatan, false, greasy, conniving politician. And here's the phrase. You'll hear it everywhere if you keep your ears open. Let's be clear. Let's be clear. And every time I hear, let's be clear, even though they're trying to say what I'm going to say is very important, I want you to listen, I know what's coming next is going to be complete lie. So when you hear, let's be clear, don't believe it. Don't believe it. But Jesus, on the other hand, is not like our current political leaders. He communicates with people honestly. He's very honest. He doesn't scheme. He's not a manipulator. No underhanded tricks. And when he wants to be clear, he is clear as crystal. And when he wants his meaning to be understood, it will land hard and it will cut deep. Really deep. Some people say, yeah, but he uses parables to keep things hidden. That is true. He will often use parables for those who want to know And so he'll keep people who don't want to know out. But some of his parables, they land directly and everybody knows it. Today we're going to study a parable that's a warning. And it's a very serious warning. And it's a warning that is understood and it lands like a ballistic missile. It is clear, it is concise, and it is convicting. And you have to be brain dead not to understand what Jesus is talking about. So if you could turn to Matthew 21, this parable is often called the parable of the tenants, but I'm calling it the parable of Jesus' life in condensed form. It's really about the life of Christ. And everybody understands it. And I believe not only is this a warning for the Pharisees and the leaders of that day, but it's a warning for us. It's a very severe warning. So if you can follow along with me, we're going to begin in verse 33 of Matthew 21. And here's how it reads. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, 
and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And we can have his inheritance. And they took him, and they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death. That's where I want to end. This is a very obvious analogy, but we first have to understand it. His audience were primarily the Pharisees. Some of the scribes, some of the teachers of the law. He was also in the temple during the Passover. So there are also thousands of people that were regular peasants that crowded around in the temple area where he was teaching. So you could say this is pointed at the Pharisees, and it actually relates to them very well. The Pharisees were a rich ruling class. Actually, they're considered nobles, they were from rich families, and they often hired servants. So the Pharisees often lived in Jerusalem. But they came from smaller towns where their farms were. And in this case, they had vineyards. Some probably had fruit orchards like we do, apple orchards. But the Pharisees understood this. So what they did is while they were spending time far away in Jerusalem, they would hire people to take care of their land back home. They were hired. In this story... They made a, there, there's an assumed deal between the tenants and the landowners that the tenants would harvest the fruit and they probably got paid accordingly. Well, in this story, um, they weren't harvesting the fruit. They weren't giving the fruit to the owners. So the owners sent servants to check on them, to keep them accountable, to collect the fruit. And they killed them. They didn't kill just one. They killed another. Then they killed another. The owner sent some more. They killed them. They killed that guy. And they killed that guy. So the owner's like, I've had it. I'm going to send my son. And his son is the heir. The son owns the vineyard too. It's his. So the son goes and they say, let's kill him too. So Jesus involves them in this parable. And they're sucked in because probably in their minds, man, I have tenants back home too. What if they did that to me? So Jesus, if you notice... In verse 40, levels the question to the Pharisees. So when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes back, what do you think he's going to do to the tenants? And they're sucked in. And they instantly can hear them gnashing teeth. And so his question elicits, first of all, a feeling. They're going, oh, I was that owner. I would crush those miserable tenants to death. They're mad. And rightfully so. They're, they're sucked into the story. But Jesus also reverses the story. And like Nathan did to David, he turns to the Pharisees and he says, really, you guys are the ones that are the tenants. Look at verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, uh, they perceived that he was speaking about them. 
And so, in verse 46, they wanted to arrest him. But they were scared of the crowds. They didn't like it. Because they understood the analogy. And it should be pretty clear if we look at it retrospectively. Jerusalem, or the faraway land, is heaven where the Father God sits on his throne. The vineyard is earth. So the far country is heaven. The vineyard, the least land, is earth. And the sun is the air. And we call him Jesus. It's very clear. So, in this story, he talks about servants that are sent and that are killed. All through Jewish history, prophets were slaughtered. Zechariah the priest was killed. Jeremiah the prophet was thrown into a pit. History says that Isaiah the prophet was sawn in two by Manasseh the king. And they didn't listen to him. And all through the Old Testament, they aren't listening to the prophets. They keep rebelling. So starting in Matthew, the New Testament, Jesus is sent, the Son of God, the heir to the throne, the ruler of the earth. And what we're going to learn is they kill him too. So this is very clear. And I want to be, I will say, I want to be very clear with two implications. And these implications aren't just for the Pharisees. They're for you. And they're very clear. And the first implication is this. The earth is leased. And leased land is not your land. It is not yours to do with it as you please. There was an article this past week that I read, and it says up to 200 teenagers broke into an $8 million Florida mansion to throw a raucous party and have a boxing match, and then they posted the evidence on social media. The article says, Florida police are hunting for a group of teenagers who broke into an $8 million mansion to throw a party. Then they turned the foyer into a boxing ring. The video shows the party was attended by a large crowd of teenagers in a house near Panama City. This included footage of two boys furiously fighting each other with gloves on as the crowd of young people filmed it. They cheered and they chanted. The images show the teenagers toying with the owner's property. They were wearing several expensive-looking rings. They were playing music. They were trashing the children's bedrooms. The mom, who owns the house, later revealed that the people went to every inch of my home. They searched through every drawer. They stole a 3,500 YSL bag that I own, Gucci and Stella McCartney purses. They took from us a Peyton Manning signed football, Yeezy sneakers, and a PS4. They also reportedly tore through the five-year-old's playroom, ripping priceless toys apart and throwing her American Girl dolls on the roof and on other people's roofs. After you read this article, how would you feel if you were the mom? My personal belief is that God feels this way every day when he looks down on earth. He feels exactly like this. Every day, he watches people trash a world that is beautiful, that he designed, he created, he gifted, and we act like it's all ours. 
We can do whatever we want. You can't tell me what to do. God is kind and he's good. And look, that's how the parable starts out. Verse 33. Jesus begins the parable and he says, there was a master of a house who planted a vineyard, he put a fence around it, and he dug a wine press in it, and he built a tower. He did everything. And all he did is just say, hey, all you have to do is bring up fruit. I planted the vineyard for you. I got the crops. I set up the building. You get to live in the the place I built. All you got to do is bring forth crops. He's good. He did everything. God the Father made the world for us, and it's a great place. The air you're breathing, your heart that's beating, he did that. Everything's grace. But in our fallen state, there's a natural tendency in every person's heart to take credit for it. I want you to go to Deuteronomy chapter 8. This was Israel's whole problem. And God is using Israel as an example. Deuteronomy chapter 8. And I want you to look starting in verse 7. And he's talking to his people that he just rescued out of Egypt, brought them through the promised land, he's bringing them to Canaan. That's the new land full of milk and honey. Verse 7 in Deuteronomy 8 says, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. Listen to how he describes this land. It has a land of brooks of water. Can you hear the bubbling brooks bubbling? Brooks of water. And then not only brooks of water, but fountains and springs. Somebody the other day told me if you go up to the UP, there's like 33 waterfalls that are bubbling down. He did that. Flowing out of the valleys and the hills. A land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates and olive trees, and honey. Can you taste the honey? Oh, he did that. A land in which you eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. And then verse 11, take care, means listen up, be careful. Lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses, and you live in these good houses, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then be careful lest your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. The God who led you out of Egypt. The God who led you through the wilderness. Who brought water from the rock. Who fed you in the wilderness. In verse 17, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand had gotten me this wealth. I did it all myself. Be very careful. Israel forgot. And the sad part, I would say a majority of people in our culture, even those who claim Christ, have forgotten. 
We think we're free to do what we please. But who gave us this heart? Who gave us this air? Who gave us this body to create life? Who gave us food? God the Father has set us up in a wonderful land to live. And we're trashing it. Just like the kids did at that $8 million house. Second thing we need to realize about living on this leased land is that the owner has hired us for a purpose. In this story, the owner and the tenants began with a very clear agreement. They agreed. He would set the whole thing up. All they had to do is manage it and bring forth fruit. It was an agreement. Everyone knows the landowner has a right to expect a return. Everybody listening to this parable says, of course the landowner has a right to expect a return. The same thing with us. God is not wrong to expect fruit from us. We live, people live, it's really weird how people think. They think they are just on this earth to do whatever they want. It's my world, man. No one has a right to tell me what to do. It's funny, my sons and I were talking a couple nights ago about purpose. My oldest son said, if you look around a room, honestly, everything has purpose. So why don't humans think we are made with purpose? For instance, if you look in your room, often you'll have cups, or you'll look in your car, you got a car, you got a bird. That cup is made to hold water and drink. The car is meant to drive. The bird is meant to fly. It's with design. If they just sat around and they refused to be used for the purpose for which they were made, they would be useless. If they were stubborn and they said, I am not going to do what the designer wanted me to do, what good are they? It says, one person wrote, God made us for himself and our hearts are restless and will be restless till we find rest in him. So those who stubbornly refuse to ask, why am I here? Or what does God want from me? They're not doing what they've been sent to do. And doesn't God have the right to expect fruit? It says that he doesn't have the right to do that. Why not? In truth, I don't think we'll ever be happy until we do bear fruit. So fruit, according to Scripture, is being humble, contrite, serving others, and loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Why does he want us to bear this kind of fruit? Because he wants the best for us. And the best thing for us is to love God. It's a great thing. And to have purpose in life. To have meaning. The most miserable people I've ever met are those who ignore their design and are just stubborn. It's very interesting in the book of Ephesians chapter 2. To me, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is the best just written gospel I can imagine. Ephesians 2, 1 says we were born dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, 2 says that we all were disobedient because we are ruled by the prince of the power of the air. But then it says in 3 through 8, God who's rich in mercy sent Christ. And then it says, it's by grace we've been saved. Not by works. 
lest any man should boast. And then it goes to verse 10. All of that being saved is so we can reach verse 10. Verse 10 is you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So you have been saved, brought out of this life of death and sin and renewed so you can now fulfill your purpose, which is to glorify God in your life, to bear fruit. And I don't believe you'll be happy until you do. So, how are you doing with this? Are you just on this earth to look to have fun? To do what you want? Are you just trashing the body God gave you? By doing what you selfishly want to do? Where are you bearing fruit? I think that's, this might be the most important part of this message. You're on leased land. Your body's not your own. It was bought with a price. Second implication is there's a battle going on. People don't like to hear this. And the battle is very real. And even though the owner has every right to expect a good return... This story shows the natural stubbornness of the broken heart. We are born in sin. And so there is a stubbornness, a pride in the heart. So these tenants in the parable actually started to believe that really they should be able to keep the profit for themselves. It exposes our struggle with what I would say is the biggest problem we have. When God is out of sight, because he's invisible, he's often out of mind. It's the way human beings are. Out of sight, out of mind. And as long as I ignore him, I don't have to listen to him. You can hear the tenants probably saying stuff like this. Where's the landowner? We're breaking our back, and he wants us to give him the fruit. I'm doing all the work in this place. And plus, he doesn't even care about this place. If he cared, he'd come back. He'd be here. Where is he? I don't even know if he exists. I don't even know if he's real. You show me the owner. Where is he? I don't see him. Well, he's coming back. You've been telling me he's been coming back for years. He's not coming back. You know what? I'm just going to keep the fruit. And people are doing this every single day with God. Every day. It's funny, if you ever go on Twitter and you try to say you're a Christian, so many people on Twitter say, yeah, show me your invisible God. Your invisible fairy land God. There is this weird, out of sight, out of mind. And then what happens, we start seeing our world and we actually believe our house, our bodies, our money, our children, our minds are ours. Where's God? Why does he have the right to tell me what to do with my house, my body, my money, my children, my thoughts, or my soul. He probably doesn't even care. But the owner does care. And the way you can tell the owner cares is he sends servants to wake you up to the fact that he wants fruit. He sends pastors. He sends teachers. And he's given us a plethora of Bibles we have so many Bibles, we're swimming in them. And very few people read. 
They ignore, and you know what ignoring is? It's actually killing his voice. In this book, in this story, the parable, the tenants killed the servants. The way we kill the servant is by not listening and putting our fingers in our ears and going, la, 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 la. I'm watching YouTube right now. I don't care. And the reason why is we've convinced ourselves God's a long way off. He doesn't really see. So if I silence the voices, they'll all just go away. So what does God do to combat our ignorance? He sends his son. He goes, all right, all right, all right. They won't listen to everybody else, but at least they'll respect my son, won't they? At least they'll honor my son. So 2,000 years ago, he sent his son to Jerusalem. But just like the story, they threw him out of the vineyard. They threw Jesus out of the city of Jerusalem. They crucified him on a cross. They spit on him. They humiliated him. They took him off the cross. They stuck him in a grave. And they rolled this giant stone over the grave. You know why they rolled that giant stone? Because it's going to silence the dead body. Nobody will know there's a dead body in there. Because as a pirate said, Dead men tell no tales. But little did they know, Jesus can rise from the dead. That's, that's the problem. He rose from the dead. And he still cries out. And he cries out with the loudest voice. You can even see it on TV everywhere you go. John 3.16 For God so loves the world, he loves you, that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And that's where we are today. And so the battle's real. People are still trying to ignore the voice, but please understand two things from this. Number one, if they hated him, they hated the son, they're going to hate you. They just will. So don't be surprised by it. You as a simple messenger are not going to be liked. I'd say this too, God will fight fire with fire and even the Pharisees understood this. It's a, it's just called retribution. So you have in verse 40, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? They knew he'll put those wretches to a miserable death. And then he'll lease out the vineyard to the people who really want it. So he's going to I want to show you something. I didn't do this for service, but I got to show you this. This to me is the scariest. I don't like to necessarily scare people, but I do like to tell the truth. So in this story, because God's a far off, and, and every time they kill the servant, they, they, they don't think he, he's doing anything. Look, we killed the first guy. Nothing happened to us. Why don't we just kill the next guy? Ah, oh, nothing's happened to us. Why don't we kill the son? Nothing's going to happen to us. Go to Psalm 50. Psalm 50, in my estimation, if you read Psalm 50 right, it is, bar none, the scariest psalm in Scripture. It's the judgment of God on his throne. And it begins that way, but I just want to begin in verse 16. Of Psalm 50. 
It says, the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes, take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit, and you speak against your brother, you slander your own mother's son. So they're doing all these things. In uh, verse 18, they take their covenant on their lips. What that means is they are falsely claiming faith. They're hypocrites. So you have verse 17. They don't want to listen to God's word. They hate discipline. I don't need to listen. I'm free to do what I want. Verse 18, they see a thief. Hey, they're greedy. And then they're sexually perverse. Because they join in the company with adulterers. Then they give their mouth rain for evil. They just vent. They just vent garbage. You ever see a culture that's vented garbage like we do? Like it's crazy. They just vent. And they lie. And then they speak against their brother and slander your own mother's son. That phrase, your own mother's son, is an idiom for Jesus. So they're probably taking the Lord's name in vain. So what does God do? Does he come back and smash them? When they kill the prophets, does he come back and smash them? No, verse 21 may be the scariest verse in all the Bible. Some people call this God's strange work. These things you have done, and I have been silent. Because you thought I was like one of yourselves, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before this. Mark this, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart. What? So, so when people sin, here's basically what he's saying. It's sort of like in the parable of the tenants. Every time they kill a servant, they think they're getting away with it. Because they don't hear from the landowner. So God's saying every time someone sins, he keeps silent. He's, but he's watching. He's watching. And then he says, be careful. Because <laughs> if you don't, there's going to be exactly what the Pharisees said. Uh, there's going to be a day of retribution. So if we go back to the psalm, he gives you verse 40. And to me, verse 40 is the kindest part of the psalm. He tells them the parable, or this is the parable, I'm sorry, Matthew 21, verse 40. He um, tells them the parable, then he lets them decide for themselves what's the answer. So here's what's happening. And then he says to them, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what should he do? What do you guys think? I call this where we are at right now today. God has given us his testimony. 2,000 years, last 2,000 years, he's given us his testimony. He hasn't come back yet. And he's asking the world, what are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do? What are you going to do with your sin? Isaiah says it like this. Come, let's reason together. Though your sins are scarlet, they can be white as snow. What do you want to do? This is mercy. We are living in a time of mercy. Jesus hasn't come back yet. We're between his first coming and second coming. And in the middle of this, it's us to decide for ourselves, are we going to worship him and bear fruit or not? 
Because I'll tell you, when he comes back, it's going to be bad. And that's where we have one more thing we have to be clear about, very clear about. The story's not over. Do you know when they killed the son? He didn't stay dead. That's why if you look in this, song, or this uh, verse, Jesus in verse 42 continues. Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected, the one that they threw out of the city, out of the vineyard, the one that they crucified, the one that the builders rejected? He's become the capstone. He's the one they're going to build the new building on. In other words, he's coming back. He's coming back. Two implications of him coming back is basically this. Is we have to be very careful that we don't let God's patience lull you into apathy. God's silence, God's sitting back and watching, doesn't mean he's not doing anything and don't think so. This is your chance to repent. When God convicts, it is his mercy wooing you and compelling you to respond. Don't let apathy stop you. Apathy is basically like, man, I got all the time in the world. Just get off my back. I have so many fun things I want to do. Man, I'm young. I'm young. Let me sow my oats. God is kind. If I die, I'll make it. And I'm better than the other guy. I'm better than most people. Just leave me alone. That's apathy. Apathy is yawning with the vision that God is coming back on his white horse. It's, uh, it's funny. This past week, I had to go to the doctor. I hate the doctor. And I, I really, I hate the doctor. And I have one of those doctor apps. You know, you have it's my health app. And you can keep rescheduling your appointment. And I think I did. My last appointment was really scheduled for January. But I, I didn't get to it till last week because I kept scheduling it. And for some good reasons, you know, they ask you for the reason. I said, oh, I'm busy, you know, work. I'm a pastor. I'm always busy. My wife said, you got to go. Please go. Ah, all right, I'll go. And I go, and the doctor, you know, does different tests, and then he looks at me, and he's not happy with me. And I wanted to yell at him. You have no right to give me that look and be mad at me. How come we don't yell at our doctors like that? That why do they have the right to be so serious all the time? Why don't they just smile and say, yeah, you're way overweight, your blood pressure's way up, and you've got five things, five tumors growing, but have a great time. You are such a mean doctor. Nope, I listened to the guy. I took his medicine. Why do we listen to our financial advisors? They're always upset. Aren't they always upset? Man, those guys always tell us what to do. But how come when our pastor says something, will you just calm down? Why can't you love, pastor? I guess you're right. I better not tell people when Jesus comes back, it's going to be a bad day. Second implication is this, is God is looking to make a new nation. So if we go back to this verse, 
Jesus says, I'm the cornerstone, and the cornerstone is how they would build buildings, so he's building a new building. What is the new building? Verse 43. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, meaning the religious people who aren't bearing fruit, and are going to be giving a, to a people who are bearing its fruit. He's looking for people who are bearing fruit. They're going to be the kings and queens in his kingdom. That's the church, but that's the loyal church, the fruitful church. So really, like I just want to do this quick conclusion. This parable is just basically saying when he comes back, we're without excuse. God has been crystal clear. Been crystal clear. Pastor Ken, um, we had Staco this last two months ago, and we had Stako. Pastor Ken gave a message. I can say it was one of the best messages I've ever heard here at this church, at the men's Stako retreat. It was amazing. And what it was about, he's talking about trials and temptations. And he said, when life is hard, when life is hard, God sends trials, temptations, or sufferings. We as Christians look at it one of two ways, but usually we look at it like, what is God trying to teach me? And we often hear people say, until you learn, he's going to keep sending you those trials. And Ken made a great observation. He goes, no, no, no. That's not necessarily the purpose of trials and tribulations. It's not to learn something. It's to reveal something. He's saying tests and tribulations come in to your life to reveal what's in your life. Are you genuine or not? It's not necessarily to learn a lesson or a principle. It's to reveal, to see if Christ is in you. I am telling you, I'll tell you, I have, I have never felt more spiritual attacked in the last year than I've ever felt. Because I, I do believe he's coming back really soon. And I think that Satan is, we were, we were kind of talking in the men's prayer partners and we were talking about this world and, and they're saying, why? What is going on? Like when you watch the news or just this anger, like there's anger towards people who say abortion's wrong, like you're killing somebody. And people are almost like, who are you to say that? And there's almost a, like a violence to that. And all over the place, just trying to live a righteous life. You have become an evil person trying to live a righteous life. And so we were trying to talk, why is it so hard? And I think it's because Satan is brilliant. He's brilliant. He's a great liar. He's a great tempter. And he hates you. He hates Jesus Christ being formed in you. And he will do everything he can to stop it. But if Christ is in you, and things come your way, and you stand strong, you don't give in, and you tell the truth in love, you tell the truth in love, but you still tell the truth, people are going to see a difference. You pass the test. It's not to learn something. It's to reveal something. God is looking for people who produce fruit. And he's going to build a new kingdom with you. Are you part of it?